Well, hello, and uh, and welcome to. I, I I think this is possibly an episode of First Draft, the thing that's not a podcast that's a voice note on my Substack history, etc. Um, I'm expressing some uncertainty because this is the first proper video episode. Um, and I don't know whether it'll go out to the podcast feed. There's not a podcast feed. Contractually, it's not a podcast. I hasten to, to emphasize not a podcast. Um, so you might be just hearing this, in which case I'll start as is customary, which is with some uh, some old school inclusive language, which is to say that I'm wearing a, a fairly cheap and, and, and nasty Christmas um, sweater uh, emblazoned with a combination of rather poorly... Um, not embroidered. I, I, I wouldn't. I don't know what you'd call that. Stitched, woven snowflakes, and some some rather jolly little Santas. The, j- the jumper is is uh, navy blue, and the Santas are the usual colours of red and white. This may be redundant information. In fact, it probably is to most of you who are watching it because this is a, a video post. Uh, welcome back. I should have said also because uh, I, I posted earlier in the week. Um, a, a mail out uh, requesting um, questions or an ask me anything style q and a I thought that a, a video style q and a would make a nice sort of monthly mailbag style addition to uh, to this this substack um, we're nearing the end of of twenty twenty three and i'm I'm thinking of rebooting I'm sort of planning how to reboot uh, this substack for twenty twenty four so there's even more content of a of a varied uh, nature some of the usual essays and thoughts and pictures and and bulletins from me, but also uh, interviews with other historians and, and video content as well. So this is kind of trying that out. And if you like it, tell me. If you don't like it, please also tell me. If you sort of like it but think it could be better, you get the message. But anyway, look, I asked for questions from, um, from subscribers to the Substack. And actually, only paid subscribers could comment on the on the article. Thank you to everyone who is a paid subscriber. Uh, you're literally the thing that keeps this going. Um, I'm putting this out to everybody on the whole mailing list, uh, rather than just the paid subscribers. But the questions themselves, uh, I think, is a, a nice privilege of paid subscribers to ask. Um, so thank you to all of you who are paid subscribers and have been supporting this, some of you, for two years now. I uh, Yeah, I appreciate it. And uh, anyone who's uh, who's thinking, I wonder what to get my uh, my difficult to buy for history loving uh, relative for Christmas. Well, how about a paid subscription to history, etc. Here we go. Right. So look, there's a whole bunch of questions here. I've I've kind of been through them. I kind of also uh, think it's fun to to wing it and and some of these questions I will uh, I hope I'll be able to answer in some form. Most of them unless they're completely fatuous and stupid, in which case I'll probably skip them. There may be some where I'm like, I don't actually know the answer to that, because although my subject is history, uh, the the topic of history is the sum total of all human deed and achievement, and I don't know all of it yet. So but let's just take the questions in order, and I hope you enjoy the next sort of half an hour of, uh, of me answering questions. The first on the list is from Kevin Shook. Ah... And we're getting straight in there with my favourite topic, your favourite topic, Princes in the Tower. Dan, I recently heard podcast, a podcast about evidence being recently uncovered about the Princes in the Tower not being murdered in the Tower. 
It reminds me of the claims that Edward II actually went into exile on the continent and lived as a monk. Well, that's uh, that's that was what was claimed by the Fieschi letter, and historians, including Catherine Warner and Ian Mortimer, have taken that seriously for reasons best known to themselves. Um, without going into what you believe on the subject, how is the history decided on such matters? What does it take for a consensus by historians to be arrived upon, and how would that how would that work on history? Middle Ages. Sorry, Kevin, I don't quite understand that. Uh, what? How do you discern, says Kevin, propaganda, gospel, fiction? Well, I think that is a good question, and it's a good. It's a question I'm happy to answer, particularly because we're not getting into uh, the weeds of the princes in the tower, which I feel I've done maybe almost to death, just like Richard did the princes. Ho ho! ho um, recently. Um, <coughs> how do you discern? Well, it's a, it's a, it's a question of judgment and. It's a question of weighing evidence. And it's a question of knowing the difference between evidence and proof, particularly in the cases of uh, Richard III and, and Edward II. I mean, the thing with history, particularly history in the Middle Ages, where evidence is more partial, typically, or less abundant anyway than the modern history, is you're dealing with, with fragments of evidence and trying to make your best guess. Um, uh, based on the weight of evidence and um, knowing that the, the better... Uh, the, the burden of proof is is one of likelihood rather than certainty beyond all reasonable doubt, in mostly in, in cases like the ones you've mentioned, which is Princess in the Tower and Edward II. And, um, and accepting that proof is a very hard thing to come by in history. Um, certainty is a very hard thing to come by, but uh, an educated, sensible guess based on the weight of evidence is, is usually less difficult. As for knowing what's the difference between propaganda and gossip and fiction, I mean, one of the things we teach young people when they start studying history, I mean, certainly in the UK where I live, from the age of 14 and 15 onwards, when you're doing what, what do you call your GCSEs here, used to be O-levels, and then definitely your A-levels, and to a very great extent your undergraduate degree, it's about weighing evidence, analysing sources, uh, accommodating for bias and context, reading sources against one another. Um, it's what I, I kind of colloquial, colloquially call learning a, a bullshit detector. It's a very important uh, historical skill. That is, in a sense, the, the skill of being a historian, is analysing uh, and weighing and judging sources. So that's that's how you do it. Um, it's That is the, the skill of... Of history. Uh, ben Neville has a question about the princes in the tower. What's a lesser known medieval mystery which deserves some more attention slash is mildly interesting slash we can show off as knowing about? Goodness me. A mystery. Hum ha. I will, I don't know. I, I'll have to, I, I don't think I can't think off the top of my head of a, a lesser known mystery because almost by definition the the Princess in the Tower case is a famous mystery. Um, I, well, look, here, here's one that you know, I know some of you listen to my Sony Music podcast, um, which is uh, this is history: a dynasty to die for. Um, season three is just finished, and that was all about King John. And so, one of the Plantagenet mysteries that's that's known, but I suppose has less attention than maybe Princes in the Tower is what happened to the jewels that King John lost in the wash uh, during the civil war that followed Magna Carta. I know there've been recent attempts. Uh, some people have, tried, uh, have proposed doing 
um, I think LIDAR uh, and other types of, um, of similar surveys around the area of the wash, which is where various rivers uh, spill into the North Sea on the on the eastern coast of England to see if they can find any trace of John's treasure. It seems um, vanishingly unlikely, given the nature of that landscape, that anything would be found there, but it's, a, it's an intriguing mystery. And then there's the other buried kings. I mean, there's where is the body of Henry I? It's somewhere in Reading, but uh, because Reading Abbey was dissolved, no one sort of knows. Um, there are a lot, there are uh, several other missing kings to go uh, go a hunting for. So, like, yeah, the, the, there are others. Other mysteries are available. Uh, Felicia Vigil says, what document from history have you been able to examine that you only dreamed of seeing in person? Well, the one that comes immediately to mind there is uh, a few summers ago, I think it was pre-pandemic, so probably the summer of 2019, um, I went to Paris and we got out the confession role, the interrogation role um, of the Knights Templar in 1300, uh, must have been the end of 1307, uh, the original the, the handwritten manuscript all stitched together and enrolled. We and it rolled it out and it's, it's tens of metres long. Uh, and to see the, the doodles in the margins, the actual notes of the confessions of high-ranking Templars during the investigation into the order, that was, uh, that was goosebumps time. But I've also had original Magna Cartas out as well. Um, it's, uh, it's a good feeling. So thank you for those questions. Uh, we've got Jessica. Uh, there are a few questions about my novels, Essex Dogs, Wolves of Winter, Wolves of Winter's the most recent one. That's the second book in the Essex Dog series. Uh, and it's, it's out in the UK. It's coming out in, in the US in January. Um, Essex Dogs is coming out in the US in paperback right now in, uh, in the US. In Essex Dogs, the Welshman, those are two of the characters in Essex Dogs, are constantly uh, disappearing, says Jessica. Would you consider writing a short story or maybe a substack post about exactly what they get up to? We see the end result of their adventures, but I love them and would like to know the details. This is, so this is great. Um, one of the things I've been like working on and thinking about since starting to write these Essex Dogs novels, which is contractually a trilogy, but I think we may well expand into into more than that. Is is exactly what you're talking about? Is little side stories? Is um, uh, novels about other characters from this world? I mean, the, the big question of what to do next in this world is: is do does one continue the story uh, with more novels that just follow sequentially? Um, mixing up, introducing new characters, and and mixing up who we focus on or do we can we leap backwards and forwards in time can i mean i'm I, i've been joking for a while and i'm now getting increasingly serious about doing a better call saul with the earl of northampton um but the essex dogs uh sorry the welshman would be would be a great side story and i won i've thought about whether to publish things like that on substack um or even whether to open a thread and have a sort of fan fiction forum for if anyone wants to contribute their own stories about uh, the Essex Dogs world. Um, that might be quite fun. I don't know. Is, is that something you guys, it's more of a question for you guys, really. Is that something you would want to read on this Substack, or are you, you want that, the, the, the fiction, particularly original creative writing, hived off? I've published some short stories on here before from the, from the vault, as Taylor would say, uh, for all these Swifties. And uh, I don't really think anyone cared. So I'm wondering if Substack is the right um, 
forum for publishing that sort of stuff. I mean, certainly interested in writing it. I know there'd be a market for it, but I don't know if it's you lot. So let me know in the comments. Ah, Shane Bat, my man. Uh, thank you. I like your new video format, says Shane. Thank you, Shane. Uh, my question is as follows. I noticed you were reading old books during research for the Henry V biography. That's cool. I wonder how much of the research resources are online these days. Do you find a lot of online resources or are you still having to dig for old books and manuscripts? I'm interested, interested in how you make the sausage when you're writing a new book today. That's a fantastic question. Um, so I mainly use as my resource for books a library in London called the London Library, which is a, a, a brilliant old library in St. James's Square. It's um, a member's library, but you can borrow from it, which you can't do from the British Library. And most of the, the collection is on open shelf. Um, and they will also, because I live outside London, they will send books to me. Uh, it was an invaluable resource in COVID. Their collection for history in particular was wonderful. And so I use that for books a lot. Um, <laughs> for manuscripts, particularly, I'm, I'm, this Henry V biography relies on a lot of French manuscripts and chronicles. The French really lead the way in digitizing manuscript collections. Bibliothèque Nationale is, is superb. Uh, Gallica um, is a wonderful resource. You know, a massive, massive numbers of uh, original manuscripts are digitized in a very easy to use form um, for the French libraries. The British Library tends to digitize pretty things, which is great in itself. Um, they're very good for images of, of manuscripts and they have a wonderful collection, less good for just the ordinary, ordinary navigation of sources you need. Probably the most valuable resource is archive.org because the great vogue for transcribing and sometimes translating chronicles and, uh, and royal accounts was in the 19th and early 20th century, late 18th, uh, 19th and early 20th centuries, let's say. Uh, in, in the UK and to a lesser extent in the US. Uh, those volumes, most university libraries will hold. I own quite a lot of the ones I need. Some of them are being republished, you know, Oxford University Press has a, has a, a terrific uh, list of medieval chronicles in facing page translation by modern scholars with, with wonderful footnotes, endnotes, and introductions, but they tend, the books tend to retail at sort of between 100 and 200 pounds each. Um, I collect the really valuable ones uh, because I'm, as you can see, building a, a history library here, um, which I'm sure will be split up and, and given away to charity after my death. Um, sorry, that's morbid. Uh, it's my research library and every year it gets fuller and more valuable and it's, I, I invest in those kind of books, but, you don't know, I'm not always, there are some books I'm only ever going to use once. So for those, archive.org, 90% um, of the time you'll be able to find a university library, often in Canada or the US, that has digitized the resource you need. I'm trying to think of a good example of one I've been using. Um, Proceedings and Ordinances of the Privy Council. It's, I mean, I should probably buy those volumes, but I haven't got round to it or I can't find the right... Um, I can't find a copy of them, uh, a physical copy. So I use archive.org and they have all seven volumes that I need digitized via different libraries and it's free to use at the moment. So so um, it's cut drastically the amount of physical time going to libraries one needs to do. And again, in COVID, totally invaluable. Thanks, Shane, for that question. Thanks always for your question. Shane's been a subscriber since, uh, since pretty much day one. 
Um, so thank you, Shane, for all your support and for everyone else who's, who's been subscribing as well. Um, so I'm just throwing that in the bin. Uh, I think this question from John Street, I think. Hi, Dan. It didn't take William the Conqueror long to subdue Saxon England. Well, that's arguable. It took quite a while. But anyway, but it took the Normans a few centuries to fully conquer Wales. Why and which Welsh... Why? And which Welsh prince stands out to you as their most successful? Well, uh, the why, a very complicated story to uh, to make it, give you a one word answer is landscape. It's, um, if, you, if you look to the, the Plantagenet king who did the most to conquer, as it were, Wales, Edward I, uh, the, the expenditure on castle building, on on road building, on towns, on new towns that had to be constructed, on on the engineering that needed to go into just holding the northern part of Wales, Anglesey, Snowdonia, Snowdonia. vast, 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 vast expenditure. Um, and the question is, for what? You know, what's the what's the the net gain from uh, conquering Wales? Um, it's not. Even in a wool-based economy, Wales is not a, a powerhouse part of of the United Kingdom. Um, its age then is the nineteenth century, when this, when coal is discovered, and, and Cardiff famously becomes the second richest port in the world after New York. Um, that's not the case in the Middle Ages. Um, which Welsh? So it's the need, really, as much as anything. And the, the Normans do conquer a, a strategically important part of Wales, which is the southwest around, you know. Um, uh, Pembroke, where the, the it's close to Ireland, and it, you know, um, but there doesn't seem a, a huge need to go fighting the the draining, expensive, bloody war you would need to to conquer the rest of Wales. Why well, bother? But, I mean, I say that as someone from a Welsh family on both sides, it's not doing Wales down. It's just it, it seems like the enterprise is is not worth the effort from a Norman perspective. Uh, which Welsh prince stands out as the most successful? Well, it's hard to look past Owen, Owen Glendower, is it? Um, I'd say that because I'm writing about Henry V at the moment, but uh, he really took the rebellion. I mean, he got as close as anyone did to making a political as well as a rhetorical reality of, of claiming to be Prince of Wales. Um, he really got somewhere. But, I mean, who was the, who was the most successful dynasty in, uh, in Welsh princes? The Tudors, of course, you know, and whether that's Glendower's um, uh, henchman at the time of the siege of, of Conway Castle, um, yeah, recent Gwilym Ap Tudor, or whether it's, you know, the later Tudors, Owen Tudor, and then Jasper and Edmund, and finally Henry Tudor, Henry VII. So they're, they're the most successful, really, aren't they? Um. Lydia Rogers, uh, the, I'll, I'll sum up your question, Lydia, if you don't mind. If anyone wants to read Lydia's uh, long and, and erudite question, just look at the comments of the last article, <laughs> the post where I called for for questions. Uh, the, 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 the essence of Lydia's question is, uh, what's your opinion on historical fiction needing to be historically accurate? Well, historical fiction is a, is a strange beast, isn't it? It's, it's, um, it's trying to have cake and eat cake. And... Uh, on the one, you know, there are lots of different ways of approaching historical fiction. There is the doing historical fiction where your point is to show off how historically accurate you can be. There's the other end of the spectrum where you're doing historical fiction really just for the wardrobe department and your story could be set among vampires or in space where you've got to choose where you're going to be. (coughs) Excuse me. And 
I think as long as you're honest with your readers about what you're doing, what your enterprise is, and you tell them what you're doing up front, and you don't try and cheat, your readers will go along with you or just choose not to read you if that's not their jam, and that's fine. Um, I don't think... I think historical fiction needs to be approached with a serious historical intent and mindset. I think what you do with the history, once it's in your hands, is up to you. Um, but it, I think it's incumbent on the author to understand the history and, under, and therefore be making conscious decisions about what they do. If, you, if you're just kind of making it up as you go along and you don't really know what the history is in the first place, that's when you run into trouble and that's when it's... Um... But I think the, 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 the sort of immediate criticism of this historical fiction isn't accurate is, is, um, can be unfair and can in fact be a category error because, you know, why did you read a historical novel instead of a history book if you wanted it to be totally accurate? Um, I think that's more true for movies. I think if you go and watch, let's say, the Napoleon movie and complain that the history of Napoleon's reign has been sort of massaged around to fit a Hollywood structure, you've made, you have literally made a category error. Um, it's as absurd as going to see a Shakespeare play and saying, it wasn't really like that. I mean, it's, that's not the point. The, the point of the dramatist was not uh, to tell a completely accurate historical story. It was to illuminate some um, some deep and eternal truths about the human condition uh, via the vehicle of a, a story set among in a recognisable historical setting. But it's a thorny question. You know, we could spend a whole lifetime and not, not get to the answer. Um, Mark Abraham says, no spoilers. This is another historical fiction question, but my works. In Essex, Dogs and Wolves of Winter, one of the characters develops a liking for certain chemical substances. How common was this kind of drug taking in the Middle Ages? Um, that, so that's Romford's story in, uh, Mark, in um, Wolves of Winter and Essex Dogs. I mean, part of my original concept of, of Essex Dogs was to write a medieval novel that some that, that contained some of the DNA, like sort of spliced into it of, of modern American war films that I enjoy, Platoon, Full Metal Jacket, Band of Brothers, Apocalypse Now, but to do so in a way that you just feel in, in terms of the attack and tone of the piece. Um, and thematically, it would be deep, deeply buried. And I thought you couldn't really do a modern American war novel with that junkie. And I thought it'd be interesting to explore, um, given that we know there were types of sort of opioid, opiate drugs around in the Middle Ages, given that we know there were hallucinogens around in the Middle Ages. There was not a literature of drug taking per se in the Middle Ages, but um, it, it struck me as uh, improbable that people weren't abusing these substances. Uh, and therefore, one of the I think one of the licenses you have as a writer of historical fiction is is to play with plausibility as well as uh, as possibility. I decided to make a drug story for Romford that was as plausible uh, within without breaking the rules of the Middle Ages as I could, and uh, I enjoyed doing it. And I hope some of you enjoyed reading those stories as well. Certainly, Wolves of Winter, Romford's story, the the hallucinatory aspect of it is. Um, is really critical to a, a broader part of of the book because it plays into the starvation of the siege as well as those of you who read the novel will understand and those of you who are about to as it comes out in the states next month uh, i hope you'll you'll enjoy the show as it were uh quick fire question from annie are you making any new documentaries in the near future i've got one that's landing on dan snow's history hit um uh what do you call it network platform 
around Christmas time, just before or just after Christmas. It's about the Battle of Shrewsbury of 1403. It's myself and my man, uh, uh, Dr. Michael Livingston, um, Professor Michael Livingston, I think. Uh, and we are talking about the Battle of Shrewsbury. That's when Henry V was still the prince, 16 years old. The critical battle between Henry IV and uh, the Percy family, led by uh, the scion of that family, Hotspur. Incredibly dramatic battle. Um, very bloody, very brutal, super interesting. Anyway, we've made a, a one-off special about that. That drops at Christmas time. I think I probably wasn't supposed to tell you about that. But, you know. um, Cynthia Seton Rogers. Uh, your writing on Henry V made me think of St. Crispin's Day, his St. Crispin's Day speech. What's a fabricated story about a historical figure you wish was true, even though you know it's not? Man, we're into specific categories here. What? Do I, well... I mean, the, the the one I've played with in, in uh, again, to return to the, the novels I've just been talking about, in Essex Dogs, the story about the Black Prince winning his spurs at the Battle of Crecy um, and his father you know, saying he must win his spurs and uh, the height of the battle and then him um, getting the, the, the black armour, so-called, which was really a 19th century fabrication. I play with that legend and try and, and flip the legend and... and and plug it into the history in a way that's amusing if you know that story and also know that story to be false um, in a uh, in a fun way. So um, that's probably the one. Uh, Steve Batty, as well as your excellent podcast, I listened to one by Alan Alder called Clear and Vivid about communicating and connecting with people. At the end, he asked his guests seven quick questions, right? So we pinched Alan Alder's questions. Here we go. I've not read these in detail, so I'm just going to, Steve, I'll, I'll answer them off the top of my head or skip them if I if, if not, because I don't want to waste everyone's time. What do you wish you really understood? Um, nano, uh, like the small physics, string theory, stuff like that. I read um, Shushan Yu's uh, The Three-Body Problem this summer. And I got to the fringes of understanding uh, the, the physics he was talking about, but then it just escaped me. How do you tell someone they've got their facts wrong? Just tell them straight. You're wrong. Uh, what's the strangest question anyone's ever asked you? I don't know. I mean, there's just there's way too many um, candidates for that. How do you stop a compulsive talker? Well, I had training on this when I, uh, when I first started making documentaries. I had a brilliant uh, executive producer called Dan Gold, who would took used once a week. I would have to go when we were in pre-production to the Channel Five studios uh, in the Docklands in London. And I'd have training in a different part of, uh, of presenting. And, and a couple of weeks we did interview training. So one week, and Dan was, was brilliant at being an awkward interviewee. And one week he was playing the interviewee who doesn't really answer the questions at, at the length you want. For, so I'd say, um, tell, tell me a bit about this church. And he'd go, uh, it's 12th century. And then say nothing else. And that's, that, that's hard as an interview when you try. You Then you've got to just drag the information out and not uh, for TV interviewing, almost deliver the information yourself in the form of a question. So you're giving your editor cut points between question and answer that delivers the information in interview format. Uh, compulsive talker, in, in, and I'm going to limit this to in, interviewing on television. Um, uh, you've just got to wait for them to breathe and then jump in and be ready with your how you're going to jump in. And sometimes it's, it's a subtle hand gesture, but it's, it's difficult. 
With strangers at a dinner table, how do you strike up a real genuine conversation by asking rather than, than talking? Uh, and follow-up questions about, uh, one of my favorites is, um, if someone says, oh, this is what I do for a job, uh, I, I like to say, and do you, do you like it? Fine, people will go in funny directions if you ask them. Anyway, ask questions. What gives you confidence? Um, everything. <laughs> um, what gives me confidence? Uh, a good night's sleep. What book changed your life? Dang. Um, Writing-wise, uh, probably James Elroy's American Tabloid. I've talked about that at great length in the past, so I won't, I won't hammer on about it. And this is just for you, Steve. If you know, you know. Uh, oh, now I don't know who asked this question, but uh, do you know when you're coming for a short tour to the uh, Netherlands and Belgium? It keeps getting uh, arranged and then postponed, arranged and then postponed, so I'm not going to say any more. They want to do it now for the Henry V biography, but when that's coming out, I don't know. Um, so I don't know, it could be this autumn, it could be autumn 24, it could be January 24. I just don't know anymore. I do know I'm doing a, I'm definitely doing a Spanish book tour. That's like booked. That's February, I think. Barcelona and Madrid. And I'm definitely doing a German book festival in Leipzig. Never been to Leipzig. Let's see what it's like. Lauren Kelly, a similar question. Would you ever bring your book tour to Washington, DC? I love haven't been on tour properly to the States since 2017. But when I did used to tour, uh, we would, without fail, do politics and prose, the uh, sort of Chevy Chase um, area one. I love DC. It's one of my favourite venues. And that politics and prose particularly terrific. Love DC. Love DC. So I very much hope to be back there, um, maybe even this autumn, next autumn, I mean. Scott Schwind, or Schwind, uh, Schwind. Uh, sorry if I butchered your name there, Scott. Uh, candid thoughts about Henry the Sixth. Do I think he suffered from a recognisable mental illness? I think it's so hard to diagnose over the ages. I'm thinking about Charles the Sixth as well in this context, and he, I don't think you can. Uh, and Henry the Fourth, for that matter, diagnosing not mental illness but but physical illness. It's just it's too hard. Um, I've seen some historians, as Scott, speculate that Henry the Sixth suffered from catatonic schizophrenia or bipolar disorder. These are really just best our best description fitting fitting the description of symptoms that we have from sources to our best description of symptoms of, of what we define as modern uh, conditions, disorders. It's a, it's a, I, I think you just can't do it. I think you've just got to say, well, what do they call it at the time? That's, there you go. That's what it was. This might be what we'd call it now, but we just, we really, we really can't know. Uh, and I, I, I don't think it's that important either, really. Um, you know, in, often in history, it's enough to describe what happened and describe what people said. And, and the application of modern labels doesn't really get you very far. It's it's only analogous anyway. Uh, Alex says, well, who do you think was the most powerful nobleman of the medieval era? William Marshall of Warwick the Kingmaker spring to mind for me. Um, I would say Warwick the Kingmaker much more powerful uh, than... William Marshall, because of the conditions of, of Edward IV's succession. William Marshall was never, other than early in the reign of Henry III, uh, and Marshall was only alive for two years, uh, two, three years, um, then uh, two years, 
he, he was not critical to uh, the Plantagenets holding the crown. He was a, a loyal nobleman and nobleman by the end. But he was never, he hadn't, he wasn't a kingmaker. Warwick was, and I would argue probably Henry Percy, Earl of Northumberland, uh, another good candidate for that title. Crikey, I've got five minutes and I've got so many more questions. I might have to split this up and do some more questions next week. Um, uh, Sarah Fawcett, I loved hearing about Pope Innocent III in series three of your This Is History podcast. What book would you recommend? There's not a, a, a terrific biography of Innocent III, um, honestly. Um, there are some collections of his writing. I'm looking over here because this is where my, pap my papal and crusades books are. There's, uh, there's not a great one. Um, John Julius Norwich's uh, compendious book, The Popes, is is a sort of maybe it's a decent place to start. Um, oh, and Sarah Force is coming on the Spain trip in April. Yes, we're going on a Crusaders tour to southern Spain. Uh, I believe it's. I, I hear it's fully booked again now. We had some spaces, but they've been booked up. So looking forward to seeing you there, Sarah. Could we have a medieval proverb every morning, please? Okay, remind me closer to the time. I'll, I'll keep my list of medieval proverbs handy. Um, Maureen's got a question about Thomas Beckett. Uh, what happened? Did they squirrel his bones away from Stormtrooper Cromwell? Okay, dissolution of the monasteries. Um, I, I don't know enough about uh, about that particular example to have a theory, I'm afraid. Uh, but I'll have a think about it. Um, Jeromeo Evans says, I saw a, a meme, brackets, reliable source, that said, I think that's sarcasm, that said medieval peasants only worked for 150 days of the year. Is this correct? Uh, what did they do to enjoy their days off? I don't, I don't know. I've never tallied up. The, but, there, I mean, there are so many religious holidays in the Middle Ages that probably, yes, uh, that that would have taken over. But what's a, what counts as a working day? Um, is there less? There's, there's less to do in the winter, obviously, uh, than than uh, harvest time. <coughs> uh, what did you do for fun? Well, you know, communal activities based around dancing and drinking, mainly. I suspect. I think. I believe. Um, Uh, Carol's got a very technical question about Scottish experience with child monarchs being relatively successful, but the English, whenever they had a child monarch, it always turned out horribly. Was it to do with the ways both monarchies were structured? You know, that's probably the subject of a PhD thesis. My off the top of my head instinct would be um, the relative. Uh, bureaucratic sophistication of the English monarchy as opposed to the Scottish monarchy. Scottish monarchy, more personal, more clan-based, more family-based. Um, therefore, my instinct would be easier to run with a regent because it's about per you know, interpersonal oligarchical connections. The English system, far more complex and, and requires... Uh, uh, requires more management but also provides different routes to um, manipulation of power that aren't necessarily personal or institutional but it's an incredibly complex question and a brilliant by the way a brilliant one uh 
Uh, question about bestiaries. Uh, I, I, don't ask me about bestiaries. Go on Instagram and look up Alex Bovey. She, she'll tell you about bestiaries. Um, oh, my God. We've done 36 minutes, and uh, I'm barely halfway through these questions. Goodness. Okay, do you know what I'm going to do? Do you know what I'm going to do? Because I don't want to rush these brilliant questions. I say we've done half of them. But I've got, I mean, I've got domestic chores to do. Um, I'm going to upload this now and I'm going to finish these questions one day next week. So I'll do a part two of this. Is that okay? I hope that's okay. I think that's fairer than just like zipping through, uh, the, the second half of the list and not really answering them properly. Cause I love, I love how many awesome questions there are. And I tell you this, okay, I'll do the other half of the questions in a post next week. If you want to add to the list of questions, Put your comments underneath this video and I'll roll those into next week's as well. As always, the comments are open to paid subscribers. This, The answers are open to absolutely everybody. I hope you understand. Um, okay, let's do that. Does that sound cool? Have you enjoyed this? I've quite enjoyed this. I like this video format, but tell me if you do or don't. All right, I'll see you next week.